Thanks for joining us at Mountainside, anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we are here to serve. Please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage throughout the week. Let's join Pastor Dave now as he continues our study in the book of Mark. Well, we are picking up in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, and we're right in the middle of this uh, um, breathless rush of Mark where uh, it just amazes me every time I take time to work through and study how uh, Mark just seems to be moving so quickly. Verse 20, one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. The attraction of Jesus, the, the attention, the draw, would have been like nothing else. His teaching like no one else. Remember in Matthew, when it says Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. You know, we each have our favorite speakers. Um, it's interesting, even as I talk to my brothers, a, a preacher that my brother loves, um, is someone I don't really enjoy that much. And, you know, so we all connect to somebody. I used to subscribe, this is years ago, you'll understand in a minute, where they sent me two tapes a month. Remember, gotta love them, gotta hate them. Um, and it, each tape had two sermons by different preachers around the country. And it was always interesting just to... Uh, just to hear such a variety each week as I went about my business. I, I loved uh, that exercise. But some were just profound and impacted me so much. And this would even be before you could get online and hear them speak. You'd have to. But I used to have Mountainside send me tapes uh, from the message back when we were first married in the 70s. And um, I just have always enjoyed listening to preachers and especially uh, classes like a seminary class um, as I'm doing other things that I can listen. But imagine hearing Jesus. He understood the scriptures perfectly. I mean, he inspired them. He understood human condition perfectly. Uh, he was the creator. It had to be amazing. Um, if you question, if you could be anywhere in history, where would it be? And for me, there's no question, it would be the Emmaus Road when Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and the prophets, explaining all the scriptures concerning himself. What an amazing thing that would have been. There was a group of people that didn't like Jesus' teaching, and that was the religious leaders and the teachers, because he was being exposed by his teaching, and they were jealous. He's getting all the attention. So there was the teaching, and then there were the miracles. In my lifetime, there have been so-called uh, miracle workers, people that were famous even in families that weren't Christian. They were on TV. They were household names. And, of course, there's still people that claim to be uh, healers. I'm not talking about does God heal. I'm talking about healers, people who say that they are a healer. And the real evidence is always suspect. There was a big to-do last few weeks about, about something that's hard to prove and it's always uh, questionable and there are few. Johnny Erickson Tata, the quadriplegic um, who was struggling with answers to why God allowed this to happen in her life, um, in the early years, would go to crusades where a healer would be there. And she said it was so disheartening to wait so long for all of the wheelchairs to leave at the end of the healing session uh, to the handicap exits or elevators that could take one or two wheelchairs at a time. Jesus, it was completely different. It was out in the open in a country the size of New Jersey, 
a leopard healed, 10 lepers healed another time, right in front of people, seven blind men on five different occasions healed, deaf man healed, mute man healed, epileptic boy healed, healed the son of a nobleman's, the son of or Peter's mother-in-law, the centurion's servant, the daughter of a Canaanite, the man at the pool of Bethsaida, the paralytic, the withered hand, the women with blood problems, dropsy, multiple demon possessions. These were people that you knew from town. You know, imagine if we had a, a person in town that was blind all their life and we all knew him and one day he can see. I mean, it was so obvious, so overwhelming. Then there were the resurrections. The widow's son being carried to the place of burial, resurrected. Jairus' daughter, resurrected. Lazarus resurrected in front of a crowd. When, when the widow's son was resurrected, the Jesus crowd was met in the street with the funeral procession. And so we see that that was a crowd that was, uh, came to almost a, a road jam. So then there were the other kind of miracles. Feeding 5,000 people, it says 5,000 men. So was it 10, 20,000 people? Hundreds healed, even thousands. John writes, John 21, many things, other things Jesus did, they're all, but they're not all written down. I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Just these little incidents, the woman at the well goes back and says to her community, I just met a man who told me everything I did. And then we see the community coming out to see Jesus, and they begged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. I mean, just imagine this happening over and over again. And the time of Jesus would have been unique because this is when God was proving, was authenticating the Messiah. Isaiah had written, when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind, unplug the ears of the deaf, the lame will leap like a deer. Those who cannot see, speak gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. It was an explosion of miracles and of healing. God in the flesh was being authenticated. There was, as I preached a few weeks ago, the time of Moses and Joshua, amazing things. There were things... Uh, miracles in the time of Elijah and Elisha, the prophets. But this was God in flesh on earth. And this concerned his family, verse 21. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. And in some ways, you can understand this concern. I mean, the... He does, the passage is saying he doesn't have time to eat or is not able to eat because there's so many people. And so the family knows him and they decide to go. Now remember, Jesus is 30. He's not like a 16-year-old. So it's not like a little kid. Um, but, you know, there is the fact of rest. I mean, when God created the earth, he rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but to set an example that humanity has to have times of rest. It's built into the law. Even the land is supposed to rest. And so we see this throughout the scripture. Uh, Matthew 14, when Jesus heard what was happening, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Mark 4, next week or next in the future, leaving the crowd behind. Disciples took him along as he was in the boat. Mark 6, so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. Um, John 4, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. So we, while we may see eight in the Gospels that Jesus withdrew, withdrew Luke tells us that uh, there were more. 
And so it's not, it's not out of the ordinary that the family would have that concern. Um, I remember being at a pastor's conference as one of you know, pastors are, how, how are you doing? Are you getting, are you taking time, um, downtime? And if a guy says no, uh, he's asked the question, well, you think you're better than Jesus? And the point being that if Jesus took time to rest, you need to also. Well, this section, interestingly, and I, I had to have read it because one of my commentaries is marked up in this section. And I never thought of this as a Lord, liar, lunatic section. And both the elements are here. This is the lunatic part where his family thinks he's out of his mind. He's just not even thinking clearly. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But so many people today, and I, I know you've had conversations like this, think of Jesus as a good guy, an example to follow, but reject or don't even consider the message of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And sometimes I've asked the question of a person, I've pressed them, is this a Jesus that you have come up with? Is this the real Jesus? Because the only way we know anything about what Jesus said is from the Gospels. I mean, there are some historical markers that mention Jesus, but they don't say much about him. And so we have to go to the Scriptures. Remember Thomas, have you heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? He took a Bible and he cut out all the sections he didn't like. And that's often what people do with the gospel, with Jesus. I like this, but I don't like that. And so sometimes uh, you'll see a meme or something of people attacking Christians for not acting like Jesus. I mean, we don't, right? I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we, we don't represent Jesus well. But their point being that they like this part of Jesus, but not this part. And so let's talk just, whoops, excuse me. Did I spill that? Oh, well. The one time I don't put the lid on. Let's talk about Lord, liar, and lunatic. In Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis refers to this. He didn't make it up. He gets credit for that sometimes. But, but he's referring back to... Uh, and making this popular. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis refers to Jesus' claims. He says these three claims. To have authority to forgive sins. In fact, behaving and speaking as if he is the person who was offended by your sins. And to have always existed. Before Abraham existed, I was. And that he intended to come back and judge the world at a future time. Now, let me just read what C.S. Lewis says, because it's so concise and clear. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, and this was, the book came out of his talks on the radio while London was being bombed in World War II. There was such a panic, and somebody had the idea, let's hire C.S. Lewis to give a weekly radio talk, and that is the content of mere Christianity. So he said this in the 1940s. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man saying he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He has, left, he has not left that open to us. <clears throat> he did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic 
or a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he is God. He, he includes this idea, too, in the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which has amazed me how many people I run into who are not religious at all but grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a fabulous place to start in talking about Christianity is using C.S. Lewis. He came to Christ late in life as an abjunct atheist. And uh, in fact, J.R.R. Tolkien was the person who talked to him till four in the morning about the fact that Jesus was the true myth. They both were into uh, mythology, except Norse mythology. They were both scholars. When you read Lord of the Rings, you, you get that picture of their love of uh, mythology. And he said, all myths point to the true myth, using the word myth not as a false teaching, but as a grand teaching, and that is Jesus. And the next day, C.S. Lewis says, I got into the sidecar of a motorcycle to go to the zoo, and I don't know what happened, but I got into the sidecar as an atheist and got out of the sidecar as a believer. Um, and uh, an amazing thing. But in, uh, in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the incident is where Lucy returns from Narnia. It was her second visit, and Edmund's first. And the other siblings don't believe them. And so they go to the professor to say, you know, they have to be lying. And he says, logic. Why don't they teach logic in these schools? There are three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, liar, or she is mad, lunatic, or she's telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and she obviously is not mad. So for the moment then, unless there's further evidence turns up, we must assume she's telling the truth. So uh, these interesting connections to people to, to think about the person of Jesus. John tells us in John 7 that his brothers didn't believe in him. Um, and on one hand, it's hard to understand. On the other hand, sometimes when you're so close, um, I had a brother that was like the good brother And so we'd go on vacation, and uh, it'd be Sunday morning. We drove all Saturday to get there, and my parents were thinking about not going to church. And Dwight would say, we're not going to church. And so my, I could watch it happen, and my dad would say, no, we're, we're going to go. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> Dwight, why would you bring that up? I'd known Dwight to say, Dad, remember, you're, you're going to give me a spanking when we got home. I mean, I thought he was insane, a lunatic. <laughs> I know he wasn't Lord. <laughs> it, it's hard to put the Godhead and the humanity together. I mean, I, I struggle with this. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with people. Luke 2.52, that's where we get our 2.52 from. How do we comprehend that, full humanity and full deity. It, I, I it struggled to read for 17 years from age 13 to 30. We don't know this, but my inclination is to believe that Joseph, as Jesus became a man, Joseph maybe died, he disappears from the text, and that Jesus becomes the man of the home, and the brothers and sisters are being raised. Um, when his ministry began, his neighbors, it says, everyone was amazed. This is Matthew 13. Where does he, this wisdom come from and the power to do miracles? And they scoffed. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Uh, we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, very common names, not the disciples. And his sisters, so we know there's at least two, live here among us. Where did he learn these things? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. That's when Jesus said, a prophet 
is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his family. And it's tough. I mean, how do we make sense of that, of that statement? Obviously, Jesus would have been a spectacular person, always obedient, always kind, always filled with joy. But it would appear that there was no apparent clue to his divinity. Now, some things I may say may be a little bit offensive. I, I, I feel like I'm walking a line of honoring the divinity of Jesus and talking about his humanity. But we don't have any clues of his miracles until he's an adult and he's beginning his ministry. Um, he was born as a baby. We can understand growing in stature. We have no problem with Jesus growing from an infant to an adult. We have no problem understanding growing in favor with people. Because how could you not like the guy? And if you hated him, it's because you were jealous. I mean, who doesn't want to hang out with a really, really nice guy? Um, but growing in wisdom and favor with God, and my best answer to this is I don't know. And no matter what I say has the taste of sacrilege in trying to make sense of it. And I think the problem is because we think of imperfect as being a defect. Dr. Ryrie one time said to my parents about the command to be perfect in the scripture, that perfect for a 12-year-old is different than perfect for a 30-year-old. Um, and so, you know, my grandson just finished second grade, and so he learned to multiply. And that's perfect, but it's not a sin or a defect because he doesn't quite get divide yet. When Joseph put carpenter's tools in Jesus' hand, uh, was his work perfect or was he learning how to be a good carpenter? It makes me think in seventh grade shop, a bunch of us guys decided we would use the lathe and make baseball bats. And so uh, I tend to sometimes be impatient. And so I was a little aggressive with the thing, trying to get it down to size. And my teacher walks over and asks me if I was making a toothpick. Uh, because by the time I got, got down to all the gouges, it was more like a wiffle ball bit. But his learning is not a sin. It's not a defect. In fact, the guy that made the best bat, though, it's the wrong kind of wood and everything. The first time he hit the ball in an interclass softball game, it busted in half, so... Did Joseph smile at Jesus' first attempt? And I admit I'm struggling with all of this. When Jesus was at the temple, this is the one glimpse we have. It says that uh, his family, finally, remember they lost him? And uh, Joseph thought he was with Mary, with the women. And Mary thought he was with Joseph. He was right at that age of 12 where he could have either gone with either, but he didn't either. He stayed back in Jerusalem. So they traveled back, found him in the temple. And it says he was sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Listening and asking questions. Um, who, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It would appear that there is a growing in wisdom. But it's even harder to make sense of favor with God. I don't understand. One writer that I read wrote... As he lived a life of obedience, his relationship with the Father matured. What word do we use? As he worshipped, as he was tested, as he obeyed the law, as he resisted temptation. The question is, why did God wait 30 years to put him in ministry, right? I think two reasons. One, the, the key reason is he was living a sinless life. And that when we come to Christ we receive the credit for the sinless life that Jesus lives, and he takes our sinful life and goes to the cross with it. So the teachers of our, let's move back to the text, verse 22 of Mark chapter 3. The teachers of the law, oh, let me just finish that up. So the truth is I don't know. I don't know how to put it together, especially 
in the light of Luke 2.52, which clearly says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God, favor of man. So the religious teachers arrive in Jerusalem and says he's possessed by Satan. This is the liar part. The prince of demons, where does he get his power to cast out demons? Jesus understands the conversation that's going on, whether he hears it or not, we're not sure. And he calls them over and responds with logic. How can Satan throw out Satan? It doesn't even make sense. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. A similar a family splintered by a feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights with himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. It's ridiculous. You are saying that Satan is defeating himself. So that is obviously not the case. Now there's the Lord part. He illustrates further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. In other words, to cast out Satan, you would have to be stronger than Satan, and he's claiming to be that person. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is the sin with eternal consequences. And that statement is pretty scary. And I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit. And the writer adds this phrase. This is written, Mark is adding this phrase. He told them this because they were saying he was possessed by an evil spirit. Now, there's a part of me that, based on that statement, could say that this is a sin that could only be committed in the presence of the Messiah, that you're saying the Messiah is possessed by the devil. But it's also, it's ascribed to the Holy Spirit. And so everywhere I have studied, this is what the consensus, the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit is to reject the clear witness of the Spirit. What is going on right now? Jesus is doing miracles in the power of God, the power of the Spirit under the direction of the Father, the whole Trinity is involved in everything Jesus does. And he is saying, this is the Messiah. The Messiah is teaching, and they're saying, no, you're a devil. Um, it appears that Jesus is not condemning them, but warning them. Careful, this is the sin that will send you to hell. He doesn't say, this is the sin. I mean, he doesn't say too late now. And that's the, that's the danger in this to say that at some point in my life, and there have been famous cases, the man who wrote, um, uh, William Cooper, the man who wrote There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, drawn from Emmanuel's vein, lived his life believing that he was going to hell because he had committed the unpardonable sin. He was actually a disciple of John Newton. Um, a lot of work for John Newton with that man. In fact, they've already said the words. Their statement is not one, this statement is not one of direct condemnation. It's rather their rejection of this witness of the Spirit and of the Savior has eternal consequences. You know, the idea of eternity, we sang that last song. And it was a picturing, we're singing about standing in eternity. It changes perspective, doesn't it? I loved this song back when I was a teenager. Let me see this world, dear Lord as though I were looking through your eyes. Um, Patty Fisher used to sing it. One time I asked her if she would sing it when they were here. And she says, I haven't sang that song. And then it was like 25 years. In fact, she was surprised that anybody even remembered it. And I just absolutely love that song. Um, I think about that song when, I, when I'm in a crowd, when I go to a, a Fourth of July at the beach or when I sit in the stadium. Let me see this world, dear Lord, as they're looking through. A world of people who don't want you, Lord, but a world for whom you died. Let me stand high above my petty problems and grieve for men held bound eternally. For if once I could see this world the way you see, I'd serve you more faithfully. Three people I led to the Lord, the first three people when I became a pastor, were within days of dying. Two of them knew they had days to live, and one had just been told, you're going to die. She was 90 years old. 
said to her son, oh, I think it's about time I talk to your pastor. Because she had rejected Christ all her life. Another woman, I walked into her room, I didn't know her, and she started to cry, and she says, I've been a horrible woman. And I know when I die, I'm going to have to answer for that. I need help. And she trusted Christ. Another man walked in after the service on a cane, yellow from jaundice, and said, uh, doctor just told me I have days to live, and I want somebody to tell me I'll see Jesus when I die. And I said, well, I can't, but the Holy Spirit can. And so what, tell me what I need to do. And I started to explain what he needed to do. Everything I said, he would just pour out his heart to God. Sometimes we don't think enough with those terms, do we? We don't think with eternity in view. I know I don't. Let me close this section by saying Paul says that he was a blasphemer. I used to blaspheme the name of Christ in my insolence. I persecuted people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. And then he goes on. This is the context in which Paul says, I was the worst of sinners. He's not being humble when he says that. He was a man who killed Christians. He tortured Christians. He arrested moms and dads and sons and brothers and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas, drugged them out of their homes to be executed. So when Paul says, I was the worst of sinners, he says, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. So let's finish the chapter. Um, verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word to him to come out and talk with him. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother and who is my brothers? Who are my brothers? And he looked at those around him and said, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my brother, anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. There are times that Jesus says things that sound pretty harsh. Um, I'm not sure why my mouth is so dry this morning, but I've drank more coffee in this time of speaking than I have the whole year since I started, but... My son one time heard the, you know, when Jesus, when Mary asked Jesus to turn the water into wine, and he says, woman, and he goes, man, that seems so, I can't imagine saying to my mom, mom asked me to do something, I go, woman, it's not my time yet. I said, you're reading into it, our context of language, you know, it's, it's not a disrespectful thing. Um, and this is one of those places where it just feels so harsh. Remember, Jesus is 30. Uh, Jesus' brothers and sisters would all be adults. Um, he's not under the authority of a parent. His brothers are well past needing his support. He's been called to do something. Even at 12, thinking back to the passage I alluded to, it, it says about Jesus in the temple, his parents did not know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you ever. Imagine losing the Messiah. <laughs> you know, God trusts you. He gives you this baby, and then you lose him at 12 years of age. Um, what a horror. And Jesus answers, why did you need to search? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And it says they didn't understand what he meant. You know, for, it was just a logical thing but it was not understood. There again is that deity and humanity. You know, this kind of a passage can give license to family neglect. Um, Jesus is not talking about neglect here. Everyone's fully grown. And remember, even at the cross, Jesus takes care of making sure his mother is cared for as he's dying by saying to Mary, John is your son, John, Mary is your mother. And it's, tradition has it that John did not travel 
until Mary had died and that she had stayed in his home. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, Those who don't care for their relatives, especially those in their household, have denied the faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. And church history is, is full of examples of people neglecting their families for the ministry. And the Bible says if you neglect your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And so it's, it's something that to be very, very careful. Balance is tough, isn't it? It's tough to be balanced. I've counseled a lot of guys over the years in finding balance. And I always say balance is not where I am. I'm always in balance. I always need to move. You know, my, my, I think my life is like this, you know, and then sometimes it's back out, and, but it's always moving towards the middle, which I miss. Let's talk just for a few minutes about the Holy Spirit, and let's uh, kind of build a little theology of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is not mentioned very often. And when he is mentioned, he is mentioned as indwelling very few people. Bezalel is one of the most famous, who was the chief builder of the tabernacle and all the furniture. And it says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God giving him great wisdom and ability and expertise in all kinds of crafts. And then it goes on to describe all of the things. The next time we see the indwelling of the Spirit is in the book of Judges with Othniel, Gideon, and Samson, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them to accomplish the defeat of the uh, foreign invasion. The next time is Saul. It says in... 1 Samuel 11, then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he became very angry. He just received news of people being taken captive, and he, they tell him, God comes upon him, and he goes, and it's this first real victory, and the people accept him as God's choice for their king. Then we see the Spirit leaving Saul um, in... Uh, 1 Samuel 16, the Spirit of the Lord left Saul, and then we see the Spirit coming on David at his anointing. This is why, in my opinion, in Psalm 51, where David says, don't banish me from your presence, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, he is not talking about salvation, he's talking about kingship. Because the Holy Spirit comes upon people in the Old Testament for building, judging, and leading. We don't have any example of anything else. So we come to the, let, let me clear up something just to be sure. I sat with a pastor one time and he says, well, you know, the people in the Old Testament were saved by works and the New Testament were saved by faith. And it was like, what? I mean, when Paul wants to prove that people are saved by faith, who does he choose to prove it? Abraham, 12th chapter of the of the Old Testament. I mean, salvation by faith goes back to chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, in Romans chapter 4, well, first of all, if you had to get saved by works, no one would get saved, right? Romans 3 says there are none righteous, none sick after God. The sacrificial system of the Lamb was a covering waiting for the true Lamb. In Romans 4, verses 1 through 8, Abraham is justified not by works. Chapters 9 through 12, faith was credited before Abraham was circumcised, before the work. 13 through 15, uh, promise to Abraham was on the basis of faith, not law. And 16 through 25, Abraham's righteousness was by faith in accordance with grace. I remember when I was a teenager and I first came on, really started to understand Romans 4. Why is an Old Testament guy to talk about faith? Now I, it's, it's, it's spectacular. It's brilliant. In fact, Hebrews 11 is Old Testament people walking by faith imperfectly. John 3, you must be born again, is before the cross. He's speaking to a Jewish religious leader. And he says, don't you understand that? I remember calling somebody who was an Old Testament scholar and says, I don't understand that either, you know. Born again is not used in the Old Testament, but Jesus is talking about being born 
of the Spirit to what would be at that time an Old Testament saint. Now listen to what Jesus says in John 14, verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads in all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. Now he's speaking to Old Testament guys, right? There's no cross yet. You know him because he lives with you. And now, and later, he lives with you now, and later he will be in you. I don't believe on the basis of that that people in the Old Testament lived without the influence of the Holy Spirit. And my whole theory is based on that verse. He is saying to the disciples, you know who I'm talking about because he's with you. Now, my opinion goes against, or a little bit aside from some of the theology books, um, but how could you live the Christian life, or how could you live the life of faith in your own flesh? without the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit can't indwell because we haven't been purchased yet. Now let's, so let's talk about the presence of God on earth. We begin in the Garden of Eden. It says, before sin, God walked in the cool of the day. I don't understand what that meant, but it was a time of going for a walk in the evening with God. And one day, Adam and Eve don't show up, and God says, where are you? He knew where they were, but wanted. I love Pastor Lyle's message on where are you and who told you that. That is so brilliant. Who are you or where are you? Look around and who told you that you should be there? Answers a lot of questions. Then the dwelling of the tabernacle. Tabernacle was built. Listen to what it says. The cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You could no longer enter because of the cloud and the glory of the Lord. And then whenever the cloud lifted up, the people would set out on their journey. In the temple, when the temple was finished, the priests could not enter the temple because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell on their face to the ground. Then the departing of the presence of the Lord in Ezekiel 10. Then the glory of the Lord moved out from the entrance of the temple and hovered above the cherubim. When I was in Israel years ago, the guide was talking about the presence of the Lord and the Shekinah glory. When John the Baptist's father went in, the Shekinah glory would have been there. And I went through this process to say the glory of the Lord had gone in Ezekiel. And I said, but wait. And Jesus came. John 1.14 says, The word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. So then the glory of the Lord comes down in the person of Jesus. Then when Jesus is getting ready to leave, what does he say? I have to go away. It is for your good so that the comforter will come. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. It filled the house where they were sitting. They looked like flames or tongues of fire settling on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages. The Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now the Holy Spirit is doing what Jesus said. He will be in you. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Don't you realize that you were all together, that you together are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy, and you are the temple. Later, three chapters later, he says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you, was given to you by God, you do not belong to yourself. Now, I don't want to make a real huge deal of this, but it is there. There's one Greek word that refers to the temple buildings, 
And there's another Greek word that refers to the holy place. And Paul uses the word for the holy place when referring to our bodies. In other words, God lives in the believer. He will be in you. It shouldn't surprise us then that Paul says we pray in the Spirit, Ephesians 16. We worship in the Spirit, Philippians 3.3. 3. We love in the Spirit, Colossians 1.8. We're led by the Spirit, Romans 8.14. We're taught by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2.13. We speak by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12.3. We live by the Spirit, 1 Peter 4.6. We walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. And if you look at Galatians 5.16, and I've referred to this so often, and I hope you're not sick of it, but the deeds of the flesh is me, and the fruit of the Spirit is him. And so if I examine the responses, look at those words, and they're all response kinds of words. Being kind, being loving. And so it's my response that is really the fruit of my life. You know, everybody's nice when the weather's perfect and the food is good. And you, you, you know what I mean? It's not hard to walk in this, not hard to look like you're walking in the spirit when everything is going your way, but let something go wrong. And so, what do we do when the deeds of the flesh manifest themselves? I don't understand. I'm just, a, I'm just an angry person. You don't know my spouse, you don't understand the kind of guy that I work for. You don't understand what kind of day I've had. Oh, I'm just that kind, you know, I'm that ethnic group, and we just all, and on and on and on and on and on, making excuses. You want to start walking in the Spirit, there are three steps. Number one, stop making excuses. Number two, receive that you were, in, realize that you were incapable of living the spirit-filled life apart from the spirit. It doesn't happen automatically. So I'm going to tell you a story that is hard to tell. It's about my mom, and I know that she would want me to tell it. If, even if she was here, she would want me to tell it. I just know her. But my mom's last 70 days on earth, she was completely out of her mind. I mean, just, she went from like 95% normal, because we started to see a few little things, to 0% normal in one day, one afternoon. And from that point on, she was really never here in, as she was. So one day I'm sitting in the hospital room, and the nurses are trying to get her to do something she doesn't want to do. And she cussed them out. She used really bad words. So later that day, I said to my dad, okay, I'm a big boy. I'm a pastor. I've heard everything. Did mom ever get so mad at you that she swore at you? And my dad said, in 62 years of marriage, I never one time heard her use a swear word. What was happening? It was actually... Uh, somebody that came to the house, a hospice pastor who came to the house within hours of my mom dying, and she said this. Walk in the Spirit as a command, and you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. That when we come to those places in our life where my mom was not, could not exercise, that her flesh was manifesting itself. See, it doesn't happen automatic. And I know there are countless stories, because I'm not using other names, but all of them would shock us. Some shock me more than even my mom. It doesn't happen automatic. In fact, there's a cost attached to it. And the cost is a lifetime of forsaking all in pursuit of God. The reward, I mean... Just to sing that song that we sang, standing there before the throne, how amazing. Seeing the angels fall on their face before God, and they don't even understand salvation. They look into it, it says in the scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 
Paul writes, what gives us hope or joy and what will be our reward and our crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus when he returns? It's you. Yes, you are pride. I mean, God's called us to make a difference in eternity in people's lives. Just one person, just one person making a difference in eternity would be worth it. And then Matthew 25, 23 says, the master will say, well done, good and faithful servant. To stand before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, will be worth everything that we endure or give up, supposedly give up. Remember Harry Balbeck used to say, well, I never gave up anything. I never, in, in other words, what he's saying is he had the perspective that anything he endured was worth it. So he didn't lose. I was with the couple that was responsible for taking the gospel to the Yanomami Indians. Some of the fiercest group of people on the planet. And after years of suffering unimaginable things, not coming home, raising children, they sat beside the first believer as he died. And as he breathed his last breath, he looked at his wife, Millie, and said, if this was the only one, it would all have been worth it. And that's the point of all of this. The point of everything we do is to keep eternity as our perspective and live in light of eternity. You know, every, Paul says every athlete that trains, trains with one thing in mind to receive an imper a perishable crown, one that'll rust and mold and fall apart and lose, lose all the luster that it had, but we, an imperishable. Eternity, live life with eternity's values in view. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this week of just reminding me of living a life well lived, of recognizing the Holy Spirit is present and the times I drag him into things that are just wrong. Forgive me. Help me to live today, this week, this hour, with the full understanding and realization that the Spirit of God dwells in me, that I have the privilege of serving you. And we'll give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.